join me if you would in taking up our Bibles once again. How glorious it is to have the Bible, to have it as such an anchor for our life to keep us from blowing adrift in the world in which we live, the pressures that prevail along with Jesus Christ to anchor for our souls both sure and steadfast that even Jesus who entered inside the veil those words are in Hebrews the book that we're studying Hebrews chapter 9 this morning we're closing in on the end of this chapter that we've entitled adventures in the new covenant and we've been on quite a few adventures a trip to the museum seeing the earthly tabernacle in the museum, a description of the ministries within the holy place and the holiest of all. And then we've gotten a glimpse into heaven, a glimpse of Jesus Christ ministering in the tabernacle not made with hands in the heavenly realms. And now we've been going to infinity and beyond and from that point, I start reading in verse 22, chapter 9 of Hebrews. And according to the law, almost all things are purged with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once, at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Jesus was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time, apart from sin, for salvation. Would you join me this morning in praying, asking the Lord's help from pulpit to pew, heart and mind. Father God, superintend upon our hearts your word, the word that you have declared in this very book is powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. We pray that it would be powerful like unto the separation of joint and marrow. And indeed, Lord, for the separation of soul and spirit. We pray that it would do its work, as that verse says, and as discerner of the thoughts and the intents of our heart. Lord, may that be our prayer. Open our hearts to your discerning word. That we would see where we have not been holding on by faith truly to the work of Jesus Christ, that he completed infinitely, and eternally. 
And let us then therefore go on in greater faith in our Jesus, in our Christ, our Messiah, in our great high priest, the Son of God, your Son, in whose name we pray, Amen. The adventures in the New Covenant are indeed unending. Unending. We've had the theme of eternity. Verse 12, having obtained eternal redemption. Verse 14, the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself. These eternal truths run throughout this text that he provides for us an eternal redemption eternal spirit working he's provided an eternal inheritance that he ratified through his death the death of the testator of the last will and testament refers to the new covenant and Jesus put that into power because of his blood. That inheritance is eternal. It is forever. These are things that we can count on and put our faith in because they're declared to us in this word. Now, we started last week to go to infinity and beyond. I've already asked forgiveness once, but maybe twice because I'm using a tagline from Buzz Lightyear in the Toy Story to bring this about. And that toy character, the not-so-friend of Woody, used his tagline so often as a spaceman to infinity and beyond. The ludicrous nature of that was evidence to, evident to all except Buzz Lightyear himself. There is no beyond infinity. So, Pastor Fred, why did you use this? I used it because we really don't understand infinity. We don't really understand much beyond the finite, do we? We try really, really hard to understand infinity, but it is truly an impossibility. Even the aspect of eternity. Eternity and infinity are synonymous. If it's eternal, it goes on forever. Then it's infinite. How does that work when everything in our lives are finite? They have a beginning, a middle, and an end. Well, that is where the Holy Spirit comes along to teach us and to give us a reference point, if you will, that is infinite and beyond. Beyond what you can Calculate beyond what you can figure. And this passage, this adventures in the new covenant is all about the work of God himself who has decided by his own will that he would make a new covenant. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. Chapter 8, 8. His promises to put his word within them. I will put my laws in their mind. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. Are the declarations of deity from his position of power and authority 
that he is declaring. He's not asking permission. He's not pleading with you, please. He is saying to Israel, his most rebellious of all people, I will. And in and through that, the Gentiles, of which we are part, are in the foreshadowing of its complete fulfillment of this New Testament, or New Covenant, excuse me. It's infinite. The promises are eternal. And it's about deliverance. This deliverance from sin, which Jesus provides, is infinite. It's eternal. The writer of Hebrews is, in a sense, taking us to infinity and beyond in displaying the four out-of-this-world provisions that result from Christ's sacrifice for our sins. And he does it with a purpose. He does it so that we may walk in infinite confidence. Infinite confidence. And beyond infinite. But I wager that even though I touched on this and began last week with two of these four, and into this week there's still, there's still a need. There's still a need for you all to attach to the infinite reality of what Christ has done permanently for all who believe, for all new covenant believers. Because of his work, his work of shedding his blood. Last week we looked at his infinite de deliverance from sin and these four different out-of-this-world provisions. The first provision we looked at last week, verses 22 and 23, that this deliverance of Jesus from sin provides infinite purification from sin. According to the law, almost all things are purged with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And so this new covenant must be purified with better things. The shedding of the blood of Jesus Christ himself, he infinitely provides even that purification of sin, that remission by his blood. Without blood, there's no forgiveness. So as I said last week, unless you are prepared to shed your own blood, there's no forgiveness. And by the way, your blood isn't pure, so it wouldn't purify you or anybody else, so go ahead and try. It ain't going to work. That's why the blood of bulls and goats, the red heifer can't purify any more than they could in the Old Testament. They were figurative. They were an external form of purification, but they were not eternal. They were temporary. So Jesus' blood is necessary for you to have your sins forgiven. So if you think, I must do thus and so, I must do X and Y, I must not do this, I must do that, so that Jesus will forgive my sins, so that God the Father will forgive my sins, then you are not walking in the infinite purification provided by God through Christ's own blood. You're trying to sweat your own blood and tears to get there a destination you will never achieve because it is infinitely distant from you. It can only be bought by his blood. Now, secondly, last week we looked at his infinite deliverance for sin provides, secondly, infinite representation over sin. Jesus Christ is the 
mediator of a new covenant, it says in chapter 9, Hebrews verse 15. He is the divine representative of this new covenant, and he mediates between God and men as a great high priest. He infinitely represents us before God. He eternally is there. Verse 24, for Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, that being the tabernacle and temple on earth, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, listen, now to appear in the presence of God, key words, for us, for us, for believers, for those who have been delivered from their, their sin by the sacrificial blood of Jesus Christ. It is eternally that he is there and that he is interceding and that he is a mediator making peace between us and God and no one can get between them. It's in heaven. Even you can't get between them. They're in heaven. Ministering in the temple. That's why it's important to have a proper glimpse into heaven, not these books that are being written about so much various things that people are there. I want to know that in heaven, Jesus is there ministering the new covenant with his own blood before God on behalf of us. Let me just say, I care a lot about you, but I think I care about me even more. I mean, a lot of me too. My faith in Jesus is about him doing that for me. And then as your pastor, I have confidence that he's doing it for you, and that keeps me in this pulpit by faith. He's doing the good work. I'm temporary. Third, I should do it this way. Third, the third provision, this infinite deliverance of Christ, our study today begins now, provides an infinite substitution for sin. Jesus Christ's deliverance provides an infinite substitution for sin. Look at verse 25. Not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another. Now listen now, verse 26. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. The infinite substitution for sin. We're now getting into the realm of theology, and as a matter of fact, as soon as we dipped our big toe into the book of Hebrews, we have been standing on and then getting into the deep end of the pool, theologically speaking. Hebrews is not for sissies. May I say that in church? I'm not sure. I will say it this way, if you don't want to grow up in Christ, it's not for you. And that's why in this, there's an admonishment, by now you should be teachers, he says to the Hebrews, but have need to be taught again the first things of the gospel. So in this, there is a necessity for us to pull up our bootstraps, if you will. And you know, I, I, something just popped in my head, so I'm just going to use it as an illustration. When I was in grade school, teachers used to say this, and even as, you know, a six and eight-year-old, I was offended. But I think she was probably using a pretty good analogy, a good picture, if you will. She'd say, now, come on, let's put our 
thinking caps on. Didn't you hate that? No, some of you are good students and you like that. Not if you liked it. No, don't, don't, don't. To put our thinking caps on, to work on this. God's word is not easy at all points. There are some things that are easy, attainable moments into it. And there are other things that must be chewed on. Let me just say this for the entirety of your Christian life. Can I have an amen? And that's how God wants it. And so now we're looking at this infinite substitution for sin, which leads us into the realm of theology. It's also known as the penal substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. Penal. There's a penalty. Substitution. Somebody stands between you and the penalty. Who is that person? Jesus Christ. The simplicity of it is this. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Therefore, all are guilty of sin. Therefore, there's a penalty. It's on you. Who do you owe? God. Whether knowingly or unknowingly, sinning against or transgressing against, God Most High renders you guilty and deserving of a sentence, a punishment, penalty for your sin. Penal, substitutionary, here's Jesus, atonement. The picture here is the old covenant of Moses, the temple of God, once a year a high priest. The high priest dressed in garments he only wears once a year, white linen, white, white, white. He has to go through rites of purification just so that he can approach from the holy place into the most holy place or even described here in chapter 9, where is the Ark of the Covenant overlaid with gold, in which the golden pot and the manna, and Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant, 9.4. And in 9, verse 5, and above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. That is the place in which he would go once a year on Yom Kippur. Yom, day. Kippur, atonement, the day of atonement. That one day a year that is referenced here in Hebrews when Jesus is now representing a different high priest. Every year that priest would go in with the blood, bull for himself, goats for the people. And that is why that reference is made in verse 13 of chapter 9. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, listen, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? How much more? That is the picture. We are to see Jesus in the heavenly tabernacle. We are to see him going in not once a year like the day of atonement, 
where he atoned for, that high priest would atone for the sins of Israel done during that year in ignorance. In ignorance. See, the rest of the year when you knew you were in sin and you knew it, you're supposed to bring your own sacrifice. On the day of atonement is the stuff you're bringing, he's bringing for you or the stuff you didn't know you did. You should have known, but you didn't know, but you're guilty anyway. Provision was being made about the stuff you don't even know to be guilty about in Israel, and that's the picture for us too. The complete covering of Jesus Christ where he substitutes himself, placing himself on the block of judgment to stand between the wrath of God and you for sins committed. There is no other substitute sacrifice that will ever be needed ever again. That's the point. Every year this went on in Israel. Every year a reminder. Okay, last year's covered. Guess what happened then? You go out and you do something else wrong and you're guilty again and you got to wait a year. That's why this is better. This is infinite substitution, complete substitution that Christ provides. Skip down to verse 28. We're going to handle that more tomorrow. Tomorrow. I live on Sundays. Okay, not tomorrow. Next Sunday. Chapter 9, 28. It says, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. That's substitution. How do we know its substitution is because of the purity of the offering, Jesus, who had no sin, taking the punishment for our sins on himself, as Peter would say in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. Listen. Speaking of Jesus, Peter says, who himself, listen, bore our sins in his own body. Well, how does that work? says, so he himself bore our sins in his own body, listen, on the tree. Why did he do it? Here's the purpose. That we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness. So he took the sin, he took the punishment, and then there's a purpose in it that dying to sins, you might live for righteousness. Again and again in this book, chapter 6, in verse 1, he says you need to learn the first things, which is a repentance from dead works. Then in this very chapter, verse 14, says that this blood of Christ at the very end was offered by Jesus himself without spot, listen, to God. And then he says, purge your conscience from dead works to serve. Wait a minute. Once again, dead works are those things you do yourself, whether it's keeping the law of Moses. If you kept all the law of Moses thinking it's going to save you, guess what? It's dead works. Let me tell you this. If you try and keep everything the New Testament says you should do, all the commands, and you do them all, which you can't, but you know, even if you think you can, no salvation. That's a dead work. If you think what you do makes God forgive your sins, 
That's a dead work. What do we do? We trust that Jesus paid that price. That he did the work for us. Then we might live for righteousness. See, we're released from dead works that don't earn anything and don't please God. And we're free to pursue righteous works done for God's glory. See the difference? On one hand, dead works, you're trying to save yourself. That is a denial of Christ saving you. On the other hand, you're working for the glory of God because you believe God saved you. That you're in his family. You're in the inheritance. You're eternally redeemed from slavery. So you can work for him. See, isn't this a revelation? This is what changed my life. This changed me from a guy who thought he had to earn his salvation to a guy who could accept the eternal salvation of Jesus Christ by faith alone. What a relief. The burden of working your way to heaven is a slog. I'd rather go to the cobalt mines in Africa then go back to trying to work my way to heaven. Can I have an amen? That is the beauty of this. The infinite substitution for sins on the day of atonement. And by the way, on the day of atonement, two significant things happen. Well, there's more than that, but let me just highlight two. And there were goats. Two goats. One goat is brought in and offered as a sacrifice. It is that blood that the high priest will bring into the most holy place under the law of Moses. But then there's this other goat, a goat in which the high priest will come up to and the goat is being held before him and he places his hand symbolically on the head of that goat and symbolically is transferring a year's worth of sin from Israel done in ignorance onto the head of that goat. And then the Bible tells us that he takes that goat out into the wilderness. And he releases that goat into the wilderness where it's bearing the sin of the people. Why is the Day of Atonement here? Why is the blood of bulls and goats here? Why are we studying this? Because there is some symbol we need to see that Jesus fulfills that was illustrated by that goat. A goat that is called, by the way, the scapegoat. It escapes death, but it is removed from the presence of God and the people to the wilderness, what the Bible calls outside the gates, where you have to go of your unclean until you're clean, and then you can come back into fellowship with the people of God and God himself Have you ever asked yourself, what was Jesus doing the three days in which he was dead? Now granted, I'm not just going to lay this out like as if I know. I'm just going to put this together and see if maybe I'm connecting some dots that may be appropriate. But be careful as well. I'm still cooking. Is this whole idea here where we're glimpsing into heaven and we're seeing Jesus in a ministry carrying his own blood? That's in the text. 
He had to present this blood himself. He's both high priest and the sacrifice himself. He's fulfilling both those roles in himself. So could it be that in the offering of his blood, the blood of the first goat, he's that offering? And then at the same time, the reason he died and he was rejected by God, even in his very words, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why have you turned your face from me? Why is my fellowship broken with you? Because in a symbolic way, all the sins that you ever committed and that you ever will commit of every Christian that ever will be was laid on his head, was laid on him, and that rendered him outside the presence of God. In the wilderness, away from the people of God, away from God himself, God's only son, who knew the infinite worship of God more than any of us ever, ever will, in this, delivered the sin away. The substitute. And that, that's why I ask this question. Look at your text. Look at your text. Verse 927. Why is this verse here then? We're in the Old Testament. And, and then we see Jesus appearing to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Verse 26. And then verse 27. And this is quoted so often by us. And it is, and as it is appointed for men to die once, but afterwards what? The judgment. Why is that there? Everything was looking peachy. Until we read that. Like, man, this is great. We got an inheritance. We got eternal redemption. We got all this stuff. It's given unto man to die once. After this, the judgment. Woo! Wait a minute. That's only used for evangelism. Don't you people worry about it, right? You just call that out in the midst of whatever you want to say. It's given unto man to die once and afterwards the judgment. Repent! Well, is that even the context? That's not even the context. It's true. But the context is about Jesus. It's given unto man to die once. How many times did Jesus die? Once. And after this, the judgment outside the gates, outside the fellowship, outside the presence of God. Judged. See, if it is penal substitutionary of atonement, then he had to pay the penalty for sin, which is separation from God. Jesus knows that. So you don't have to. How unfair. People talk all the time about how unfair God is to them. How unfair it is to live in this world. How unfair could God be to allow bad things to happen to good people? How could this God do this? And I ask you, how could God do this? Deliver his son up to his own wrath that is deserved by these people. That's not fair. You know, there's an illustration of this. You see, because this shouldn't happen. Even we as men know. You know, not so long ago, and even today, there's still a world of kings and, 
And by the way, just let me remind you that in the fullness of the dispensations of times, the kings are coming back. I'm not speculating. I'm quoting Daniel. There aren't ten kings. We don't have end times. There will be kings. And in the world of kings, there's, there's a different thing called status. Don't you wonder in the United States, because we say from president to the poorest person, we should all be judged the same. Don't we say that? Nobody said yes. Maybe I've lost the illustration because of the injustice of our age. But we know that there should be justice for all. Didn't we used to say that? With liberty and justice for Republicans. Liberty and justice for Democrats. Liberty and justice for liberals. Liberty and justice for conservatives. Liberty and justice for all. Communists, socialists, everyone. That's what we say. And we know there's inequities. And whenever we see the inequities in that, that they're not actually judging fairly, what do we say? Well, we say, that's not fair. Well, in the ages of kings, there's a story that is told, and even uh, possibly historically accurate enough, even a man wrote a story. Uh, I'm not quoting it this morning, but it's called The Whipping Boy. Whipping boy, an old story. But let me just tell you about the whipping boys of the Bible. You see, when kings had sons, the kings would hire tutors to teach their sons. The prince. But the problem with a tutor teaching a prince is that the status of the tutor is below the elevated status of a prince of the realm. And so it was said that it is inappropriate for a lowly tutor to mete out punishment upon a rebellious student, the prince. And so to figure this out, a substitute was had, known as the whipping boy. And the whipping boy was to become a friend of the prince. Someone that he would play with. Someone that he, he would walk with. Someone that he would tell stories with. Someone that he would snigger off in a corner with, as little boys do. Someone who would go to classes along with him. And when the prince would commit an error, when the prince would do something wrong, the tutor wouldn't punish the prince. No. He would go to the prince's friend, known as the whipping boy. And the whipping boy would take the spanking, would take the punishment that the prince deserved. Because the prince, ah, how lofty. And we say to that when we read it, that's not fair. How could he possibly learn any self-control with that? Well, the idea is seeing his friend punished would provide an equivalent motivation for him not to continue to repeat his offenses. So the innocent whipping boy takes the guilt of the prince and gets the beating. Well, I can tell you, if you're that person that gets the beating, you feel it's a grave injustice. I remember once as a child, I took a beating for my sister Antonia. I still remember. I'm 58 years old and I'm not over it. I was innocent. Now, the other stuff they didn't catch me at, I'm not talking about that. 
Let me tell you the difference. The son of the king. The son of the king is taking your whipping. The son of the king, Jesus Christ, is taking the scourging. He's taking the mocking. He's taking the ridicule. He's taking the curse of dying on a tree on the cross. And it's not fair. He's in your place. Why don't we cry about fairness then? No, we rejoice in grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. God who gave his only begotten son that whosoever shall believe on him shall not perish but have eternal, infinite life and beyond. Number four, he provides infinite forgiveness of sin. Brothers and sisters, listen. We need to get this right. We need to think right, we need to believe right, or we will be in a form of crippled Christianity the whole of our lives. This we must know. What did the deliverance of Jesus Christ provide? It provided infinite forgiveness of sin. Look at verse 26, the last portion. I'll read the whole verse. Then he would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. Listen, but now, once... At the end of the ages, listen, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. To put away sin, which means sin and its consequences. He appeared once. He appeared once. He appeared once. Chapter 12, or chapter 9, verse 12. Once. Again and again. I, I say you should count these up. All the onces that are in this chapter alone. And in the very text that we have been studying. Once, 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 once. Verse 27. Given unto man to die. Once. Verse 28. So Christ was offered once. Skipping back up to verse 22. According to the law, almost all things are purged with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. There's no forgiveness. Remission means forgiveness. Infinite forgiveness. We don't believe it like we should. Can I have an amen? We need to believe it like we should. Psalm 103 verse 12 is a training film on how you should think about what God has done with your sin through Christ Jesus. 
Psalm 103, verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. Chapter 8, we had read the new covenant promises. The last two promises come in chapter 8, verse 12, where God says, I will. Notice he didn't say, you will. He says, I will. He obligates himself to this. I will be merciful to their unrighteousness. What is mercy? Mercy is not getting what you deserve. You know what mercy is? The ultimate unfairness. Mercy is the ultimate unfairness. It's not fair that you're not punished. Can anyone say amen? If you can't say amen to that, you might not be saved. You have to know that somebody else paid that price on your behalf, and that's what you're believing in. The mercy of God, like the tax collector who stood in the temple, bowed his head, beat his chest, and said, Have mercy on me, a sinner. You want to know how to be saved? Say those words right now to Jesus Christ and mean it. Have mercy on me, a sinner. That's saving words. That acknowledge you need the unfairness of God to be applied to you and the unfairness of God's wrath to be pushed onto Jesus Christ for you so that he will have mercy and overlook your sin. I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins, listen, and their lawless deeds, hear me, I will remember once a week on Sunday so you can feel guilty going to church. Walking down the street at some abstract moment so you can feel, feel, feel guilty in front of everyone else all around you. So your face can flush with shame once again over past sin. And over past attempts to please God. That's what he's after, isn't it? Keep us in a low state of perpetual groveling guilt, the weight of sin. Isn't that what the Bible teaches? No! That's what charlatans, that's what liars who try and teach the Bible teach. This says, I will remember their lawless deeds and their sins no more. As far as the east is from the west, how far is that? Well, somebody, somebody that's out there is a little smarter than the rest. We'll say that's all the way around the globe, Pastor Fred. Well, is that the only east and west there is? I mean, in God's mind, when he created the heavens and the earth, was the earth it? Is that all he thinks about when he thinks of my creation? Well, I know it's not, because he says, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. What's the firmament? The heavens! But that's not very firm. It is to God. And you can stop at planets along the way or so I'm hearing. Lord help Elon Musk. The rocket blew up this week, by the way, but oh well. Did pretty good. In all of that doing, how do we explain infinity? How do we draw an infinite line? How do we go to eternity? How do we go to infinity and beyond. When you draw a line, eventually you run out of a page of paper. You try and draw it on the line, uh, on the wall. You eventually run out of wall. It's better to say this, your sin has been deleted. Do you understand deleted? Well, even that, seeing the computer where somebody always says, well, you know, nothing's ever really 
deleted. And that's the way some churches teach about the forgiveness of God. God forgave you fully, <laughs> but we remember. So, it's time for an offering. Or something else. Isn't that true? Am I wrong? This is what's going on. Isaiah 43, verse 25, God says, I, even I, am he. He who? He who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, not because you're good, not because you're great, not because you're better than them, not because you're better than her, because, not because you're better than your siblings. I was hoping to get some of the kids to look up. I'm the good one. If you've ever said that in your family, let me just tell you this. You're not. You're better at hiding it than the bad one. For we all, like sinners, have gone astray. But he says, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgression for my own sake. He goes on to say, I will not remember your sins. What's wrong with us? We like remembering our sins. Sometimes we like to wallow in them. Have you ever wallowed in your sin of the past? Maybe you wallowed in the sin of your present. Just wallow in it. Feel bad because it's a great excuse, isn't it? Oh, man, you can justify all kinds of stupid stuff that you do. Well, I don't have to be nice to anybody. Why? I'm wallowing in my sin. You know, I don't have to follow the Lord and do what he says and do my duties. Why? Because I'm wallowing in my sin. I feel bad. You should all feel bad with me. Oh, woe is me. You know, that's why so many Christian churches are so plain boring. Are lacking in true emotional fervor. And I mean emotion that's based on truth. You know what should get you started in the morning? You know what should keep you going all day? He's forgotten your sin and he'll remember it no more. Whoo! Man, that's a load. I feel sorry for Jesus, don't you? I mean, sometimes it does kill you. And it probably should at some points. But let's rejoice today. This whole new covenant promise is here. How can, how can this be? Jeremiah 31, 34, quoted in our text. No more shall every man teach his neighbor. And every man his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sins I will remember no more. In Jeremiah 50, in those days and at that time, says the Lord, the iniquity of Israel shall be sought. Listen, listen to this. The iniquity of Israel shall be sought. Are the Jews guiltless? Is Israel guiltless? Is there nothing about the sayings that go along with anti-Semitism that there isn't a shred of truth? There are some. They're sinners. And right now they're in a state of rebellion by and large, except for a few who are believers in the church. The state of Israel is unbelief. But he says, the iniquity of Israel shall be sought in that day to count it all up. But there shall be none. 
can't find it. You know, what do you do when you sin right away? What's the first thing you do when you sin? Okay, you guys don't know, but I'll tell you. But you know people that know. The first thing that people do when they sin, try to hide it. Uh-oh, shouldn't have done that. Now, damage control. Keep exposure small. Don't ask, don't tell. Particularly, don't tell. Am I right? There it is. But even if you try to find it, Israel, it shall be no more. And the sins of Judah, and they shall not be found. You don't have to hide it. God's hiding it for you. Isn't that a relief? You just have to confess it. I'm a sinner. Save me. Satan looks for sin. Did you know that? Satan is the accuser of the saints. He loves to accuse us before God. You know, I'm, I'm wondering, we're, we're in this world. You know, this, you've heard about this thing called AI. Is at thing chat GPT. Artificial intelligence. Is this the brave new world? Or is this the proverbial swirl down the drain? What is this? They tell me, and I've read articles, and I've seen what this AI can do. You can just say, make me a poem based on spring and have robins in it. And it will make a poem somehow searching through the entire internet, whatever that is, gleaning these things and making meter and verse that's better than most people can make, they say. They say the possibilities are infinite. Let me make a correction here. I don't know much. Let me just say I'm not a computer expert. And when computer experts talk, I must say, I'm kind of like Charlie Brown at school, listening to his teacher. What did they say? I don't know. But let me tell you something I know. Artificial intelligence is not infinite. There's a plug. And by the way, the information that artificial intelligence has comes from one source. Do you know what source that is? Us. Man. That's the scary part. Some of these people are teaching the AI thing to lie. I may be wrong, but that's what Elon Musk says. I'm just telling you the best thing that we're supposedly coming up with in intelligence is supposedly infinite, is finite, and it's fallible, and it's useless, and even it's trying to remember stuff it's going to remember wrong. But see, God's not like that. You may not compare the intelligence of God to any kind of computer intelligence. It does not compute. You know, if they taught it, 
the word of God, what then would happen? And to say, everything you decide and do, base it on this, these truths. You know what you would have? The Judeo-Christian law that we have in our country. That's for free. I've got to move on. God is the only one who can unplug the knowledge of sin and forgive. Micah, this question is asked by the prophet. By the way, in a time of Israel's great sin. Micah says, 7 verse 18. Who is a God like you? I ask you, Christian, who is your God? What do you think of when you think of God? Do you think about him watching over your shoulder, waiting to catch you in some crime so his punishment can be meted out? And if any circumstance in your life doesn't go your way or doesn't seem to be a good thing, do you say, well, I must be in sin? Do you say, I must have done something wrong? I must have transgressed God? Then you're superstitious, you're a mystic, and you're not functioning as a Christian. But when you say, who is like God, pardoning iniquity? That's how you walk down the street. Who's like my God, pardoning iniquity? And a spring will go into your step. And the world becomes brighter. And passing over transgression, Micah says, of the remnant of his heritage. Listen to this. He does not retain his anger forever. You know, God gets angry, but he doesn't stay angry, like, unlike many of you. I thought I'd get a laugh there. He doesn't stay angry forever because his deli he delights in mercy. He will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea, and you will give truth to Jacob and mercy to Abraham, which you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Can you look at this world now and say that about the Jews? That that's what awaits them. Can you look at yourself and say that's what's been provided for you, that same kind of infinite, eternal forgiveness for, to infinity and beyond. You know, this is a life changer. See, this will change the church. See, if we really believed in this kind of forgiveness from God that is unfair, then we would be forgiving. How can we who have been forgiven so unfairly so much, so much of our, all of our sin dumped on the head of Jesus Christ and his separation from us, and we not be a forgiving people? Brothers can't forgive sisters. Sisters can't forgive brothers. In the home, in the church. Husbands to wives, wives to husbands, bitterness built up over years, keeping score, keeping credit. Oh, no, you did this 20 years ago, and you're still the same. It sounds ludicrous when I say it from the pulpit, but it lives in hearts, does it not? Why did he teach us to pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses. That, that, that's a big that. That purpose 
we may forgive those who have what? Trespassed against us. Well, no, I won't. Not unless they ask me forgiveness. And they better ask it right. Or you get nada. Nine. Yet. Zero. I'm forgiving. Of course I'm forgiving. If you pass the test. As far as the east is from the west. It is a man's glory, it says in Proverbs, to overlook a transgression. To forgive a multitude of sins. That means there's a whole multitude of things during the day that someone can do to you and you can by grace have mercy on them and say, this isn't fair, but I give it to you. So, Sister Antonia, I forgive you. For that beating. And it was a doozy. I mean that literally. I know we laughed just now. But what good is it to know you're forgiven if you can't forgive? See, if you can't forgive, you haven't accepted forgiveness. You don't know what it means. And I think the church is full of that. Church is splitting, dividing, fighting. They don't know their Bibles. They don't know their God. Lord, help us. So Christian, are you saved to infinity and beyond or not? And if you are, then go out and live infinitely, redeeming the lost, finding them, delivering them from a life of dead works to serve the living and true God. To declare the forgiveness of God that is infinite. And smile while you do it. I pray that our faith would extend to here. That we may walk in joy and newness of life. Stand with me. Let's pray the Lord's Prayer together. Shall we pray? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever and ever. All people say...